was the director of the Navigator work in out that part of the world who had the vision for getting a, what he called a China task force ready for the day when uh, China opened. And that was before the ping pong diplomacy and before, uh, a couple of years before Nixon's proposed trip, part of the thought was that, well, when the day comes, perhaps that Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek are no longer on the scene, things might ease up and we could get in there. So, uh, but it looks like things might open a lot more quickly than we thought. Of course, it is also true that uh, people go back and forth to mainland China every day, from Hong Kong and Macau, and there are other ways to get at things. So even if it were going to take 15 years till we got into China mainland, we were not going to be just sitting around waiting for that door to open. There are a lot of overseas Chinese and a lot of places in which to work. Um, I'm very happy to have as a guest tonight uh, Miss Carol Shifley from California, who's just uh, visiting with us for a day or two. And I'm wondering if there are other guests that are here uh, tonight. This is the first night you've been with us at the uh, conference. Are there other guests here? Does anyone have guests that haven't been here? Uh -huh, happy to have you. Anyone else who has guests here? Happy to have you, too. Now, I would like to explain that uh, I'm in the middle of a, uh, a Bible study, I guess you call it, in the book of James. And uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. But, um, see, I like that singing, didn't you? I uh, they came up here. I hope you've got something a little zip into it. Well, they did all right. Uh, you know, we need that. Some of us are kind of getting along a little bit, get a little staid. We need to be loosened up a little. I think that's one of the great advantages of having six kids in the household and still having some home. Personally, I, uh, I appreciate the Montevani myself, but I'm learning to appreciate some other kinds also. That, that's, that's great. Uh, I was wondering, uh, though, uh, five after eight. Kind of a wordy individual. Hey, Zimisi, when did you last sing that song, uh, Like the Woman at the Well? Was that for this conference? The first night? Are you going to sing it tomorrow night? No plans? Uh, who plays the piano for you? Uh, could we do that right now? <laughs> Think we could? All right, let's first of all, let's stand up and stretch a bit. And then we're going to have that song and then I'll talk. Take a deep breath. Take a couple of them. This thin mountain air. You takes two to get one lung full of oxygen sometimes. Stretch a little bit if that if you want to. I hear some bones cracking. All right, be seated. I'd appreciate very much if you would sing that for us, uh, Bob. Let's see. We're all we all set, are we? Uh, I like that, because uh, this is the way I feel a good part of the time, like this song. So, uh, we're all set, I hope. I think we can't find the music. I mean, I sing it loud. 
Without music? Can we do that? Okay, I mean monotone you mean? <laughs> okay. I think we'll do it without rather than pressure Debbie. Thank you, Debbie. <clears throat> like the woman at the well I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my well, which never shall run dry. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting in my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me whole. There are millions in this world who are craving the pleasures earthly things afford. But none can match the wondrous treasure that I find in Jesus Christ my Lord. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting in my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me whole. So, my brother, if the things this world gave you leave hungers that won't pass away, my blessed Lord will come and save you if you kneel to him and humbly pray. Oh, fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting in my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me whole. The book of Proverbs says, Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. Years ago there was a popular song, I'm laughing on the outside but crying on the inside. And uh, have you ever put a smile on your face to hide a tear in your heart? Have you ever walked around and uh, sort of pretending like everything was fine and you were empty? Just empty. We all know what this is. And that's why I like this song. Fill my cup, Lord. And uh, refresh me, revive me. In the book of James, which is written by the brother of the Lord, or the half-brother of the Lord, in the first chapter, I think the key verses are verses 2 and to 4, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know something about these trials, and that is that the testing of your faith, which they do, produces steadfastness or stable, consistent character. Trials do come into life. But James says that if we respond to them correctly, they have a salutary effect upon us. 
Usually at our table, and, uh, and Carol, who is visiting at our home tonight, can vouch for this, it's a report on the day's activities. In fact, Carol is our guest, and it wasn't until dessert time that we got to find out what she's been doing. Which is, uh, my, my oldest boy is out job hunting. He'd tell about this, and my daughter about that, and somebody. And so it was quite interesting. We, that's the time we share what goes on during the day. How did your day go? That's part of it. So one day I was driving home, and I thought, well, if tonight when they ask me, I'll give them a little different answer. How was your day, Dad? Well, I had an S&H green stamp day. S&H green stamp day. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, S stands for a little sadness. H stands for a lot of happiness. Green stand, stands for growing. I hope I've grown a little bit. And the stamp stands for stick. I hope it sticks. <laughs> so I think life is a little sadness and a lot of happiness, but a little mixture. And I trust that all the way through we're growing and that the lessons stick. James 1, 2 to 4. Then we took the last half of the chapter, and I think the key verse there is chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We get the idea that attending a meeting and hearing a talk is the same as applying it. And as excited as we may be, hearing is not the same as doing it. And, uh, well, well, the comment I had on that would take too long. I'm watching the time, and you'll find out in a minute why. In chapter 2, which we had night before last, the key verse, I think, is in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, one of the characteristics very obviously will be, a, will be love. And that love will not be in, in talk, but that love will be in caring for the needy, the orphans, the widows, the needy. And I have shared with you my own working definition of love, that love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another and seeks his good. In other words, if we are concerned enough about other people to accept them. That's where you have to begin. A concern for everyone, be they black or white, long hair or crew cut, afro or straight, no shoes or high heels, an Indian blanket or a stole, Radical or conservative, dove or hawk, Christian or Buddhist, Protestant or Catholic, or if they like, blood, sweat, and tears instead of Madhavani. Really, when you stop and think of all the hang-ups in life that keep us from accepting other people, it's really amazing. Love is an unselfish concern, concern enough to accept others, freely accept another. But it doesn't stop there, it seeks his good. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love one another. Not by what do you believe so much, but how do you act toward others? 
That is such a terrific thought. I want to just spend a moment longer on that. One night a few years ago, I was in Denver, just went up to the motel to do a little study for a couple of days. And I read in the paper that they were going to rerun a TV program that they had run a couple of weeks before that had gotten more viewer response than any other program in the history of that station. So I thought I'd watch. And little did I know what I was getting in for. What a great program. It was entitled just plain James Emery Bond. Not the James Bond that some of you might be thinking about. This was James Emery Bond. And the whole program for an hour long was an interview with a black man in his 70s. And apparently what had happened, he lived in Baltimore, Maryland, and one evening he was watching television while some of the city leaders were talking about the various problems of the city, the chief of police, the mayor, and so on. And they were talking about the race problems and crime problems and all the rest. And he said, as I sat there and watched them, he said, I was moved and so concerned with them. And I saw the struggles and with which they were uh, approaching these problems. And he said, I felt that I had an answer. But he said, who'd listen to me? I'm just an old truck driver. But he went down the next day to the TV station and just wanted to talk to somebody. To tell him he'd seen the program the night before and he felt he had an answer. And so apparently they sat him down and somebody had the good sense to interview him and videotape it. And so this program that got such a viewer response was a videotape of this morning interview with this black man who had walked into the TV station to try to talk to somebody about the program he'd seen the night before. And the interviewers were off camera, and all you saw was this, this man. i tell you, it was a delight. They first asked me about himself, and he'd say such things like his wife. He said, now, uh, oh, he said, uh, I'd never let her get out in the bright sunshine or in the dry wind. And he said, you know what, today her skin is just as smooth as the day I married her. And he told about his wife and he told about his children and, and one was a doctor and one was a teacher in some school somewhere and, and uh, some of his philosophy of raising children. And Then he went on and he, he said that, uh, so when I was a boy, he said I would uh, go off to school and as I went to school, white boys would throw rocks at me. And they'd call me names. He said at first it didn't bother me all that much, but it didn't take long until a real hatred grew up in my heart for white people. Then he said when I became just a young man and I got my first job as a truck driver, I saw the milkman go by the house one day and I thought, well, how nice it would be if I could just have a little milk before I went to work each day. And a glass of milk could just taste so good. And I wish you could have. I can't in any way communicate the graciousness and the, the delight of this gentleman in his 70s. Uh, but all I can do is tell you the, the, the heart of this. <coughs> so he said, I stopped the milkman one day out in front, and he was a white man. And I said, would you mind stopping and leaving me a quart of uh, uh, milk each morning? 
He said, I don't deliver milk to people like you. Well, he said, I, next day I called down to the company and I asked them if it was true that they did not deliver milk to black people and they said, no, that was not true. They'd see to it that he delivered the milk. So he said he did. He brought the milk and he left it there and several weeks went by and he said, I realized that he hadn't given me a bill. So he said one day, I stopped him. I said, uh, sir, I haven't, you haven't given me a bill and I want to pay for this milk that you've been delivering. And the milkman said, I don't take money from people like you. So he said, I told him, I said, I, I don't feel right about that if I don't pay you. I got to pay you. And uh, finally the, uh, the milkman said, all right, you lay the money on the fence post. So James Emery Bond, he said, I thought I'd have a little fun with him. So I said, no, I can't do that. I, I don't feel like I really paid you unless I put it in your hand. <laughs> And the milkman said, no, sir, you put it on the fence post, on the, on the post there. He said, so uh, I did. He said, I put the money on the post. And when he reached out and took it, I just laid my hand right on top of his. <laughs> and he said, and he yanked it away. And then he went on to explain how that didn't help his heart any towards white people. Then he said one day an evangelist came to town by the name of Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, but Billy Sunday, this was way back when. He said, and there I heard about the love of Jesus and how he would change a man's heart. He said, you know, I walked the sawdust trail. And you know, he took the hate out of my heart for white people. He really did. And he changed me. Then he went on, he talked about that a little for a little while, and then he said, apparently a couple nights later, the milkman went to hear Billy Sunday. And he too went forward and had a personal experience with Christ. And he said a couple days later, the milkman came up and he stopped the truck in front of my house. He came up through the gate and up on the porch, and he said with tears going down his cheeks, he asked me to forgive him for the way he treated me. He said, you know, I've loved him, and he's loved me ever since. That's what James is talking about. The royal law to freely accept another and seek his good. Now James says, look, if you don't have that kind of a thing, there's no evidence of that, he says, I don't believe you have true faith. That's what he's saying here, isn't it? You may say you do, but if you don't, says, can that kind of faith save you? What kind of a Christian is that? Love. I heard it said that before he was converted, the Apostle Paul, who then called Saul, prayed every day as a very religious man. But in his prayer, he would pray as did others in his position he would say, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a slave, and that I am not a woman. Apostle Paul was converted. And he wrote a little letter to some Christians one time, and you know what he said? 
He said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. That's the change of heart. Love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, whatever, and seeks their good. Oh, that's James chapter 2. Now, I feel kind of apologetic about this. On the first chapter, I took two nights, right? Second chapter, I took one night. Tonight, I'm going to cover two chapters. <laughs> Whether that's good or bad, uh, I don't think I'll find out, because when I get through, I'm going to skip out of here. I'm not just sure how good that is. <laughs> but I tell you, the reason for this is I want to wind up tomorrow night on, on chapter 5. That's the last night, and there's especially a thought in chapter 5 that I thought was just the way to wind up this conference. So I either had to skip 3 or 4 and go to 5, but I've got to get to 5. So you're all polite people and you'll stick with me. Also, there's another reason. The problem raised in chapter 3, I think, is the uh, solution is found in chapter 4. So why raise a problem without going into the solution? And besides, both chapters are short. <laughs> now, all right, James chapter 3. Now, the theme for James chapter 3 is found in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain, useless, soap bubbles. Does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. Now, he's talking about uh, using as illustrations two organs, the tongue and the heart. This is what we have in chapter 3. Verses 1 through 12 in chapter 3 has to do with the tongue. Verses 13 through 18 has to do with the heart. Now we'll look at verses 1 through 12 in chapter 3 about the tongue. Verses 1 and 2. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. For we all make many mistakes, and if anyone makes no mistakes in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body also. Now this is addressed to teachers. Teachers must be careful. They'll be judged with greater strictness. Now it might be said, I suppose, that a teacher's tool is his tongue, what he says. Carpenter uses a hammer and a saw. Dennis uses a drill or a plumber or a wrench. Teacher is tongue. Although, later on it points out that's not all a teacher uses. If that's all he uses, then there's, there's something wrong. Then the next three verses, he talks about the big influence of that little member. The tongue. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they may obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great, they are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. We have here three illustrations of the big influence of that little member. One is a bit. That's a bit 
in a horse's mouth is a key to the total conduct of that old horse. And through the tongue, through the words that we say, we can turn people completely around and as in the case of that horse, harness his energies to useful purposes. The tongue, the power or the influence of the tongue for good. Or the illustration of the rudder, a small thing, a mighty ship. And a rudder is able to keep it on track. And through the power of the tongue to keep people on the track, heading in the right direction. Or you might, this matter of the fire, a match. Now a match can set a whole forest on fire. The tongue can be used to set people on fire for God and for a good cause. But, and so it can be life-changing. A lot of us have experienced how one sentence spoken by someone at the right time has been a life-changing experience for us. Heaviness in the heart of a man makes it stoop, but a good word makes it glad. We all know the experience of how words can lift you up or let you down. The power of the tongue. Then, in verses 6 through 10, I won't read them, I just summarize that James says, that unfortunately, the tongue can go wild. He says it's an evil, it is untamable by man, Though he can tame beasts, he can't tame the tongue. It contaminates everything because there's something wrong somewhere and it's totally inconsistent. The one that praises God curses men whom God has made. So unfortunately, the tongue can go wild. And he has some pretty hard things to say about it. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, this ought not to be so. And then he says in verses 11 and 12, he points out the trouble. The trouble is that there's something wrong at the source. He uses the illustration of the spring. There's something wrong at its root, at its very nature. Or, in verse 14, uses the word, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. In other words, the trouble, this, this mighty force, which can go wild, has a root problem that has to be controlled if the tongue's going to be controlled, and that's its source, its root, or the heart. The heart. That's where the root of the problem is. Jesus said, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, and so on. There's a remarkable statement in the purpose of UNESCO which says, since wars begin in the minds of men, it is in the minds of men that the defense of peace must be constructed. That's another way of saying that the problem is in the heart of a person. Now then, he talks about the heart in the rest of the chapter, 13 through 18. Now, I think that verse 13 is a pivotal verse of this chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life, let him show his works 
in the meekness of wisdom. Now he's talking in 1 through 12 about the teacher's talk. Now he's talking about the importance of the teacher's walk. Both depend on what's in his heart. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, let's call on him to talk. Ah. You got a smart guy around? You got somebody with some wisdom, some understanding? Well, let's call on him to speak. That isn't what he says here. Let's not call on him to talk. Let's call on him to walk. Let's let him demonstrate his wisdom by his good life and his works. Then we'll listen to him talk. As I said the other night, in speaking like this, you don't go from your study to a platform. You go from your study to life to the platform. Here at the Glen, through the years, as we selected speakers, occasionally we'd get one who's just a, what I call a, he's just a Bible conference speaker. He just goes conference to conference to conference. And I, I never approved those kind of speakers. I like them to go from here back to funerals, broken homes, problems of life, then go speak. I know we had one who'd stand up to bat, he'd get up and speak, and then he'd disappear and write books. Oh, I know you can write books, and what is that? I have to admit I'm embarrassed about that book in there called The Art of Personal Witnessing that's got my name on it. Really, because you can write books but not do witnessing. One night I was in Honolulu, going my way out to the Orient, and I was over—I was there overnight, and just a day or two. And I was—I walked into a bookstore, Christian bookstore, and there I saw that book with my name on it. And man, I was so struck by conviction that I wasn't, you know, necessarily practicing what I'd been written about, so writing about. So I uh, decided, well, I'm going to talk to somebody about the Lord tonight. So I got out on the stood on the street, and I didn't know anybody. And here came a sailor down the street with his pea coat over his shoulder. I know he had his overcoat over his shoulder for in Honolulu, but there he came. And he was striding down the street, and I, I looked at him, and he looked too tough, so I just let him go on by. And <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I waited, and no others came, and apparently this guy circled the block, and here he came again. And no one else would come in the meantime, so I fell in step with him. And I'd learned years before, don't ever stop somebody in their track, you just walk along with them. And so I fell on step, and I just in a moment, I told him what I had in mind, and you know, I found a very lonesome man. He told me about his wife was back in Virginia, she'd had a baby a month or two ago and hadn't seen him, and boy, here was a guy who needed a friend. And we had just a great evening together, and we talked about the Lord, professed to make a decision for Christ a little later up in the servicemen center. But you can give talks and write books, but not do it. And we make a big mistake. Say, well, the first step is when you know something is to go talk about it. You know something, go do it, then talk about it. The book of Acts starts out the book. The former treatise have I written, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. That's what James is saying. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good life let him show his works, not his words, but his works. I hadn't heard this for a long time, so 
So I had them hunted up today. Edgar Guest's little poem. I can't read poems, but I'm going to try to read this one. You know, the sermons we see, you remember that, most of you. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example's always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That means modesty, humility, and the whole fourth chapter is about that. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Now then, there are two kinds of wisdom, verses 14 through 16 and then verse 17. But if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, so you might say he talks about wisdom from below and wisdom from above. Now wisdom, or rather he talks about jealousy, bitter jealousy. Now jealousy is intolerant of rivals. That puts others down. Selfish ambition puts yourself up. Bitterness, jealousy. I heard about a lady in the church who was very upset because she wasn't nominated for, for a certain church office. This actually happened because the preacher told me. He didn't tell me the name of the person. He told me the incident. And so somebody said, well, we're sorry. We didn't know that you uh, were interested. She said, I'm not. I just want a chance to turn it down. <laughs> Doesn't sound very attractive to me, somehow or other. Uh, but look at verse 17. Just let this run over in your mind. Just think about it. How great this is. How beautiful. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, not argumentative, irritating, stirring up strife, pure, then peaceable, and it makes for peace, gentle, open to reason. open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty. In other words, it's based on principle. 
or insincerity. Boy, isn't that a beautiful description? Now that's the kind of wisdom that God gives in answer to prayer. The prayer, as, we, as is mentioned in James 1.5. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now the harvest of doing what is right in the sight of God must have an atmosphere of peace. But instead of an atmosphere of peace, what do we have? War, conflict, trouble, strife. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. What causes wars and what causes fightings? How come you don't have peace? How come? All right. Chapter 3. A bad tongue is due to a bad heart. To try to control your tongue without changing your heart is to deceive yourself. Chapter 1. Now then, James 4, I think we have the answer. Now, if you, uh, I don't, if you outline this, I think that we have just three simple divisions. Verse 1, verses uh, 2 to 10, 11 and 12, and 13 to 17. What's wrong with a bad heart? What's the result of a bad heart? And what's the remedy for a bad heart? What's wrong with a bad heart? Well, we've already gotten some clues. But he says, what causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? Passions means self-centered desires. Self-centered desires. Self-gain. Self-gratification. Self-centeredness. self Self, self, me, me first. Form a line, please, behind me. Me. Self-centered desires. In other words, it's the big I. The big I. Me first. Oh, of course, when I get older, I'm a little bit more smooth than that. You know, I cover that all up. It's not like little kid that says me first. I make a pretense of you first, but it's form a line behind me, please. <laughs> and what's and what's this all about? What's the what's at the heart of this whole thing? The big eye. That's the center letter of pride. And that is the heart of this Bible word called sin. It's the big I. That's what he's talking about. That's what causes wars and fightings among you. It produces bitter jealousy, pushes others down, selfish ambition, pushes me up. I'm just debating whether I should share this illustration, but I think I will. We are in a conflict. We're in a warfare. Everything isn't always smooth. Someone says, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, because you spoil its perfection. 
Somebody wants to see me next week about some problems he has with the navigators, and I was telling Walt that I don't know what's on his list, but I'm sure I can add to his list of the problems I have with the navigators. And they can probably add to their list of the problems the navigators have with me. We are not without problems. As I told someone today, we don't ask anyone to join us to become as we are, but to come and help us become what we ought. And way back there when uh, Doss Trotman died and I got this job, the word came to me about another fellow who's not with us now. Maybe he thought he should have this job. But he told somebody else who said to me, Sandy got all the breaks. Well, I told the person who related to me, I said, when you get back and you see him, would you tell him this from me? He's right. I did, I got all the breaks. And I know this, that the way up with God is down. This whole portion is talking about that. And if I were to give a title to the third chapter or fourth chapter, it would be Pride versus Humility. Now then, the result of these self-centered desires, this pride, this big I, this is conflict. First of all, it's conflict with others, verse 2a, with others. You desire and do not have, so you kill. First it's battles, it's brief flare-ups, and people are, uh, got all these flare-ups all the time. They can't get along with anybody. You know, have you ever had some experiences where some days or some weeks there's nobody around you but what there's something wrong everywhere. You name him and I can criticize him. When everything's out of focus and there's something wrong everywhere, it could be your glasses. <laughs> or wars. What about these long-term animosities? Some people are like a person who's playing ten games of chess at once. They got a little battle going on at home. They got a little battle going on in the neighborhood. They got a little fight going on down at work. They got a battle going on over here. There's wars, all little battles. Everywhere you look, they've got a fight on. The result of the self-centered desires, the big eye, pride, sin, is conflict with others, battles, wars, and he says even death. You mean it ever gets so bad that even his murder is a result? Well, yes. What about David? His selfish desire for Bathsheba resulted in the death of her husband, Uriah. And I wouldn't doubt but what there's a lot more murders would be committed if it uh, wasn't against the law and you wouldn't get trouble for it. Yeah. I wonder how many couples today, one of the spouses wished that something happened to the other one so they'd be free for somebody else. Don't tell me murder's not in the heart. It may not be in the action. But I've been around a little bit too much to know that, uh, I, I know that's amazing, but it's, it's true. So this is not exaggerated, that a result of self-centered desire, the big I, the me, conflict with others, battles, wars, and even murder. But it also puts us in conflict with ourselves, down inside, not only with others, but ourselves. 
And this is evidenced by the fact that he says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask it wrongly to spend it on your passions. You have unanswered prayer. Nothing seems to settle. You're agitated, frustrated, bitter, disturbed. And if you did get it, you wouldn't be settled, satisfied with it. Because a little bit only demands more as an insatiable appetite. So it puts you in conflict with yourself. Down inside, it's all torn up. So you not only have wars of aggression going on on a half a dozen fronts, you've got a civil war going on inside. Well, that's a mess, isn't it? And then verses 4 and 5 says that these self-centered desires, the big eye, pride, sin, not only puts us in conflict with others, with ourselves, but with God. Unfaithful creatures, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself in the enemy of God. But do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which is made to dwell in us? Now, friendship with the world, he said, is enmity with God. Now, the world system is what it's talking about. It's governed by the big eye. Self-centered desire, self, 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 selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. That's what he's talking about. And he says, the Holy Spirit is grieved, and yet God does not give up. That's the idea. He says, now, God doesn't give up on you. You know, one of the great uh, blessings to me in the Bible is Jacob. I don't know about Jacob in the Old Testament, but... Jacob is the kind of a guy I would not have liked to have for a friend. He was mama's boy. Um, particularly, I, I don't particularly you know, care for mama's boy. I'm going to try to love and accept mama's boys, but they don't just, they're not drawn to them. He was a sissy. He was a deceiver. He was a cheat. He was a supplanter. And he hated himself, too. And yet, you remember, it was 80 years old that one night God got a hold of him and changed him and changed his name from Jacob, supplanter, to Israel, prince with God. And someone has said, no failure need ever be final. I'm 50 years old. I don't want to stay like this all my life. I hope that there still can be some change, that there's some hope that God is relentless. He will not give up. That's what I think he's saying here. He yearns jealousy over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He doesn't want to let us stay in this conflict, this state of conflict, with others, ourselves, or with God. And you can't. Really, there's something down inside that you just can't rest till something's cleared up. Well, how do you clear it up? How do you clear it up? Well, now, in the rest of the chapter... He talks about the remedy, but he takes them in a little different order. He starts, first of all, with God, then he goes to others, and then he takes it ourselves, and that's the right order anyway. Now, with God. The, and what he's saying here, I think, that the remedy for self-centered desire, the big I, pride, on this general word sin, is humility. 